every other phase in my life, it was very clear that I wanted one thing. And I just got off of off of the treadmill, so to speak. And then there was no like clear, like, I need to go there. This is Death, Sex, and Money. It's Death Walking on the Beach. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. So that's where my priorities are right now. Sex. And need to talk about more. Keep the small bills on the outside and call me if anyone gets drunk. I'm in a sale. Dominique Foxworth used to play in the NFL. I talked to him about leaving football behind about two and a half years ago, and it stands as one of my favorite episodes we've ever done. With the Super Bowl coming up, we thought we'd share that with you again, along with an update about what Dominique is up to now. Because when we talked before, Dominique was about to start his last year at Harvard Business School. He was in his early 30s, and he was looking ahead to life without football at its center for the first time since he suited up for peewee football as a little boy. Turns out, Dominique says now, hopping off that track was harder than he thought it would be. We'll have that update at the end when he tells me, among other things, why he quit the high-paid executive job he landed right out of business school. When we first spoke, Dominique was in Baltimore, his hometown. I was in New York. But I told him we'd been in the same place before. I was at the 2004 Gator Bowl in Jacksonville, Florida, and I was rooting for West Virginia. Sorry about that. Yeah. Do you remember the score? Uh, I know we had 40-something, and I believe you guys were in the single digits or maybe like the teens. <laughs> That's right. No, 41 to 7. Yeah, it was a good game. No, it wasn't. <laughs> Dominique went on to play in the NFL for seven years for the Denver Broncos, the Atlanta Falcons, and the Baltimore Ravens. He was also the president of the NFL Players Union for two years. Dominique led efforts to better understand the long-term effects of concussions on players' brains. And he negotiated directly with NFL team owners. I don't want to paint all the owners with a broad brush because I've developed some relationships with some who I, I don't think they're like uh, assholes, to put it that way. But I think a lot of them are, honestly. Dominique says that changed the way he thought about the game he'd loved so much growing up. He started playing football when he was six years old. I remember very clearly in the apartment that we were living in, sitting down with my dad, and he asked me what I wanted to be when I grow up. And I told him, professional football player. And uh, he proceeded to say, okay, well, you should set little goals between now and when you get there and work, do something to work towards it every day, no matter how big or how small. And uh, that night I actually did sit-ups because I was like, all right, well, I'm going to get strong enough right now to get in the NFL. So it's good old six-year-old logic. I did sit-ups until I probably got to 300 or so. And I remember... Uh, probably for the first time since I was a baby, uh, not be able to control my bowels because I was so dehydrated. I threw up and had some <laughs> other had some other stomach issues. So I remember my dad saying, "Well, you can't, you can't, you can't like do it all in one day." Is it true that your parents have never missed a football game of yours? That is absolutely true. I had one or both at every single game uh, my entire life, so it was. This is yeah. peewee league, junior oh, high, yeah. high school, college, NFL, all over the country. One of your parents is in the stands. Yep. 
Um, I remember when I was a kid not knowing that I had good parents <laughs> until uh, after a practice uh, in high school. My parents were late picking me up from practice one time. I was, like, really upset. Like, what the hell? <laughs> Why am I still here 30 minutes after practice is over? And all these other kids like, yeah, I wait here every day for an hour. Like, who knows when my mom's going to show up? That was the first time that they were, like, not there for me <laughs> exactly when I needed them. Uh, the first time that I looked around at other people who were just like me and and saw that they didn't have that. When you get, you know, older in high school and you're thinking about college and college ball in the NFL and you start to realize, like, oh, not everybody who says they want to be an NFL player when their six-year-old boy gets to be an NFL player. Did you question it or did you did you always kind of know I don't think that I ever had, like, real serious doubt, but so I graduated from high school uh, half a year early, and I started at the University of Maryland, full-time class and full-on practice with the football team, and I was awful. So you you go from being a dominant kind of player in little Baltimore to playing with men, essentially 21, 20-year-old guys who had been in a full, a real um, training program and and played against other men and and I, I the high school that I went to had a football team for two seasons before I I got there so we didn't really have really? developed yeah we didn't have much of a developed program so I, I got there I was getting dominated by them on the field I was getting dominated in the classroom because I mean you know senior in high school you're just kind of chilling. So then I, I go there and they are not chilling. So I I had I ended up pulling it all together and and getting like a reasonable GPA. But that first this first uh, month or so on the field and in the classroom was miserable. And that was the first time when I was thinking, I was like, well, I don't know if this football thing is for me. What was life like in the dorms for you? <laughs> I don't know. It's uh, it's definitely a different experience than the average freshman because you're kind of a celebrity on campus. What was it like to be a celebrity on campus with women? There were some easy opportunities or layups, as as I called them back then, and oh, those man. easy opportunities. <laughs> layups. <laughs> yeah, I, I was I was 18-year-old guy. I mean, forgive me. I, are we going to get a chance to get into conversations about the more mature Dominique Yes, Foxford absolutely, absolutely. That has a better perception on masculinity <laughs> than uh, racking up numbers. Like that, that's how I thought when I was, when I was 18. Forgive me. Uh, so when those opportunities presented themselves, there was a specific type of person who was looking for you. <laughs> yeah. And those are not the type of people that you're necessarily looking for for a long-term relationship, if that makes sense. Yeah. So it's I think an extension I, of fandom, you know, in some, yeah. I guess. So having fun and having these great sex stories from being a college athlete but like attracting the type of woman, like attracting my wife, uh, we went to the same school, but we didn't date then because she was not uh, enamored with the the persona that I, I I was, and the so I think it hurt us academically, where professors were harder mm-hmm. on us because they thought we were dummies who were just there to play football, and and it definitely was 
difficult romantically. And I think it probably had a racial component also in going to predominantly white school. It's like, well, these uh, women who wouldn't necessarily be interested in you as kind of a long-term relationship type of person, they're like, well, this big kind of like Mandingo strong black man, let's experiment with that and see what this is all about. Which huh. obviously were you aware we didn't of that at the time, or, or looking back? Um, I think I was aware of it at the time, or I, I kind of used it to justify some of the things that that I would do, you know. So I, I wasn't like the the best boyfriend or the best everything at the time. And I think I would use things like that, like, well, they're just after me because they just want to be close to to the football guy or they just think that I'm in great shape and I'm like this stereotypical like oversexed black male and they want to give that a try but they don't actually want to take me seriously so I mean whatever I don't care if like I am with her and her friend and don't think much about it you know so I think I was aware of it to the extent that it gave me cover you know So playing on a winning college football team is sort of like being a rock star, along with the other 125 guys on the team. You're growing up together, learning how to deal with celebrity together, but none of you are making any money. A moment I'm really interested in is is that transitional moment. You know, University of Maryland was good when you were there, but there were just a very few of you who went on to the NFL after you graduated. Mm -hmm. Did you talk about that with your teammates, the reality of when you play for NCAA, you do not get paid, and just uh, very few of you are looking forward to a a massive payday? One of my best friends in life, and he's still uh, a really good friend of mine. Like it, It breaks my heart to talk about now because our friendship is kind of up and down occasionally, but we're still pretty close. I'm the godfather to his daughter. But I remember we kind of stopped talking for uh, a year or two when I went to the NFL and he didn't. And I remember very clearly when we were training together to get ready for a pro day, where which is when NFL scouts come and, and watch you work out and at your school. So we're trading for the pro day and... I think it was evident that he was a great player, but uh, he had had injuries and it was evident that he was going to have a much harder time making it professionally than I was. And I said something to him to the effect of like, well, I mean, I love you where, I mean, as long as I make it, like we both make it and whatever you need. And I guess maybe that was the wrong thing to say at the time. I thought it was the right thing to say, but I remember very clearly him responding to me by saying that um, it was some quote from the Bible that said uh, that uh, a rich man has about as much chance to make it to heaven as a camel passing through the eye of a needle. It felt like he, he like resented me or there was some jealousy and it definitely uh, hurt our relationship going forward. And I don't know that we've ever like been the same. Well, it's interesting that it was financial. It wasn't like you get to, you get to realize this dream. It was like, I realize you're going to get this big payday. Yeah. And the guy that I was just talking about had three knee surgeries and a shoulder surgery and reconstructed his index finger. 
So he's going to have to have a knee replacement. He was told that in his 20s, you're going to have to have a knee replacement by the time you're 40. And no one's covering that, that health care that he needs. And no one's making up for the fact that they guided him towards a major that he wasn't interested in, but they guided him that way because they needed a easier, he needed an easier major so he could be flexible with his, mm-hmm. uh, his football schedule. Like these are all things that decisions that were, pushed upon a 17-year-old kid that were that would benefit the institution more than they would benefit him. So it sounds like it was in college that you were I mean politicized in a certain way mm-hmm. about the the economics of sports and how players needed oh, yeah. to advocate for themselves. None of us had any control or leverage in order to protect ourselves and and then there's the whole idea that we're students before athletes but uh, the sports, if I had an exam uh, during practice, then I went to practice. And if I got a, a 100% on my chemistry exam, no one is going to receive any benefit, including me. So the motivation is there there for me to do well, to get an interception on Saturday. That will benefit me. That will benefit the athletic director, the coach, the university, the president, the alumni, the students. I take issue with people pretending that the benefits that are afforded the university and all the people involved are not a result of the sacrifices of the players. Coming up, Dominique explains what made him finally leave football behind. And we hear an update from him about another major career decision. They have all these statistics that they share with us at business school before we leave about how many people changed jobs in the first year and I have become a statistic. So (laughs) (laughs) a, a good one, I guess. We're in the middle of working on an episode about your breakups. A lot of the stories you're sharing describe the gory details of the breakups themselves. But you're also sharing what happens afterward. Teresa, a 35-year-old listener in London, recently went through a breakup. She says it was sudden and really painful. But she wrote us, For the first time ever, I was able to do everything right in terms of post-breakup. All those years of... The same advice I've told friends, all the years of advice I've been told but was never able to put into practice about paying attention to myself, about just mourning and crying and doing what I needed to do in terms of being upset, about no text, no communication, about all of a sudden I started doing exercise <clears throat> regularly, I started meditating journaling, all these things. Um, And even while I was feeling so lonely and so, you know, rejected, abandoned, I knew that I would come out stronger in the end. It's hard to do breakups well. That's why we're compiling your best advice in a breakup survival kit so we can all be more like Teresa. What have you watched, listened to, or read during that painful period after a split? What's helped you move forward and heal? Email us at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org or contribute to our public Google Doc. There's a link to that on our website at deathsexmoney.org. And look out for our episode all about your breakups. It's coming out in just a few weeks. 
This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. We have had a lot of exciting new things to share with you about the show recently, but this might be some of our biggest news yet. Death, Sex, and Money is officially going to be live in New York City at the Tribeca Festival on June 11th. And I want to personally invite you to the live taping we'll be doing with the legendary journalist Kara Swisher. If you know Kara's work, you know her ability to get people to tell her things is unmatched. And she does it in her signature, hard-charging way. She's not afraid of things getting a little combustible. I have a slightly different interview style, so we're going to talk about that and play around with that in experimental ways that I think will make this a special show unlike any of our other live shows up to this point. And it's not often that I get to do a live Death, Sex, and Money show in New York, so I really hope to see you there. Whether you're in the city, on the East Coast, or just been looking for a reason to visit New York City, come on June 11th for this show. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash Death, Sex, Money. We are so excited to see you there. I'm Shankar Vedantam, here to tell you about a great mystery. That mystery is you. As the host of a podcast called Hidden Brain, I explore big questions about what it means to be human. Questions like, where do our emotions come from? Why do so many of us feel overwhelmed by modern life? How can we better understand the people around us? Discover your hidden brain. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. At the end of his college career, Dominique was drafted by the Denver Broncos. He spent three years on that team. But then, in 2008, he was traded to the Atlanta Falcons. The year before, the Falcons had lost 12 games and only won four. Dominique needed to win to get a new contract. And the move south made him wonder if his career was over. 
I was living in a hotel for a little while and then on an air mattress in the place I rented until my furniture got there. And so it was really uh, a lot of time to think when you're on an air mattress and you don't have a TV. And when you're at the bottom of the depth chart, do you think your career is coming to an end? It's a lot of time to think. And I think that was really a kind of pivotal time in my life and had me thinking differently about my about who I was. Then turns out I ended up having a great season and signed a, a major, a really big contract in, in Baltimore. Baltimore. It was a return to the town where he'd grown up. And that big contract was worth $28 million over four years. Then Dominique got injured. So you, you had a shorter career than you could have had in the NFL because you tore your ACL in practice. Mm-hmm. Right. On that day, did you know that, that it was going to be over? No, I didn't know it was going to be over. Um, when did you realize? I think um, when I went back the day I, I, so I recovered from the ACL and I went back to start practicing and things weren't right. That was an issue, but also things weren't right for me psychologically. I just participated as the president in the negotiations for the collective bargaining, the most recent collective bargaining agreement. And I sat across the table from the owners of the teams and negotiated over the the projected $10 billion the NFL was supposed to be making. And days later, I was on the practice field, uh, list, like sweating and listening to coaches yell and all that. And I just didn't, I mean, that, hmm. I, at this point in my life, I'd, I felt more comfortable at the table than I did on the field. It, it didn't feel like I went from like the top of the totem pole to the bottom. <laughs> we, we get paid well because the talents that we have are so rare, but you're still the labor. So in some ways it felt like you weren't being treated like a grown man. You're being yelled at by coaches after sitting at the table in a position of power. And then you go back to the field yeah. and, it's exactly what it felt like. And that's when I said uh, I should apply to Harvard Business School. And I always had business school in the back of my mind, but I realized I could kind of play the same way that I could play with the best on football. I realized I could play with the best um, intellectually and professionally. Hmm. That's interesting because, you know, you hear career-ending injury and you think that that you know, it would be this very fraught moment for you, but it sounds like you had you had stored up some resentment by that point that you were you were ready for something else. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it's the really big difference is guys who are able to maintain the love for the game, and I don't think I maintained that. I, mm. I and I don't know if I've joked with some of my friends and saying that you're either really strong mentally or really weak mentally to be able to maintain that because you either don't see what's going on around you or have the strength to put that out of your mind. So when I was a high school player, obviously like do anything I could for my team and the guys like that's the last time where I felt like I was really on a team. Then when you get to the NFL, I had a great rookie season and I was playing well and they went and signed another player at my position for uh, like $30 million. And then I was not allowed to start. And so like my first contract was um, not a ridiculous amount of money. It's not kind of, it was great money, but it wasn't life changing. Like 
your grandkids will have these yeah. great opportunities type of money. And that's why I wanted to come to the NFL. So when I saw him sign that deal and then him get this playing time over me, I was very angry and I wanted to get that opportunity. So my goal became less as much as I wanted to win the Super Bowl or play really well, I wanted to play well because I knew that if I could play well, I could get this extension, I could make this money, and then my kids can go to private schools. <laughs> and so yeah. it became more about that, getting to the next transaction, than it did about like being the best player and supporting your team and sacrificing for your team in the way that it was in high school. Did you decide to retire, or was it forced on you? I think I decided before it was forced on me. Uh-huh. Like, I knew that I was done before they knew I was done. <laughs> and then eventually they said, you know, you're done. <laughs> huh. And I said, I know. Like, thank you for the opportunity. Like, I'm sorry that I, I felt, it's crazy too, because I felt this great amount of guilt that I wasn't able to fulfill um, my contract. I didn't feel enough guilt to like give them the money back. That's ridiculous. <laughs> but, but I remember thinking when I was a rookie and I was on my, I was a third round pick and I was a rookie contract. I remember thinking very clearly, like they owe me more money. Like uh, I started half the season, played in a bunch of playoff games, made big plays, and uh, played like a starter, and they're paying me like a third round pick. And I feel like for my last contract, it was the opposite direction. And it, and I remember trying to, in the same way that I try to rationalize some of my decisions in college, I try to rationalize it like, well, the league as a whole owed me this money or something like that. But it still didn't, didn't like alleviate the guilt that I felt. But again, wasn't that guilty because they're not getting the check back. <laughs> and are you... When you think of your your where you are financially right now, are, are your grandkids set, or do you need to make Absolutely. some more money? They're set. Oh yeah, it's great. Love it. How does that How does that affect your decision making about life when you're in your early thirties and don't need to worry about money? That's it's a weird thing because there's. I think we all kind of say this. Uh, say like, well, if I hit the lottery, I'm quitting my job and I'm going to travel and like be on the beach all the time and just hang out. And I can, but <laughs> I don't, there's this like, uh, I did some reading recently about the, the hedonic treadmill, which mm -hmm. is what, just like the, what I feel like I'm on. I had like a, a mini, mini like existential crisis while in business school because in my mind, it's like, I want to go to business school. I want to become a billionaire. Like, I, I want to take uh, however many millions I have now and turn them into hundreds of millions or, or billions. And that's mm. just like how, it's like why you go to Harvard Business School, right? But when I got there, they actually, I was surprised because that's not what they teach. They kind of teach this, like, more look for fulfillment. And so there was a period there when I was like, what will really fulfill me? Like, do I want to stay home with, be like a stay-at-home dad? And I came to realize that that's not what makes me happy. <laughs> so, like, the one thing that I, that I got, or a couple things that I got from football that I realized that I want to continue to have in my life is, one, relevance, and two, mm -hmm. competition, 
And I remember when I like being sitting and being honest with myself, I was like, all right, well, you really liked the attention, didn't you? <laughs> and it's not something that you want to you want to say, but it's like, yeah, I, I kind of did. And I liked having the platform. But I still think that somewhere inside of me is still like. Who doesn't like being the big man on campus? Yeah. And I don't want to not be that anymore. Yeah, I mean, you and, you came of age at a time when. When your name would be announced, people would literally cheer. I mean, <laughs> it's it's kind of ridiculous. It would, um, and I think that I found when I was having this kind of existential crisis, where I was like, "What do I really want out of my next job, and what do I want out of the rest of my life?" Uh, the year between football and business school, like I would just study all day, but I'd be around the house and I was not very happy. Like it just doesn't make me happy to not have a goal to strive towards. Tell me about your wife. She's awesome. She's uh, crazy smart. Uh, she is private schools her whole life, and both her parents are doctors, and she had a different experience than me growing up, which was very cool to to have. I think that's cool for our kids to have that perspective. But she went on to Harvard Law School, and I remember thinking, this is really great. Like, I don't want a stay-at-home wife. Like, I, it's not how I grew up. I thought that's what I wanted. And so then we had kids, and that's not who she is. She's a stay-at-home mom most of the time, and hmm. and that works for us. I thought I wanted this kind of, like, power relationship where it's two people who are just climbing to the top of everything. And I think I probably thought that because— I was in an NFL and I like feared that somebody was going to try to come and take advantage of me for my money. I wanted mm -hmm. someone who also had earning power. I think that was part of probably like subconsciously why I thought that. Mm -hmm. But that's not actually what I that's not actually the person that would fit into my life if I had like this this kind of alpha personality person around and we would clash a lot and who's going to stay home with the kids that question is never asked with us it's like she wants to i want her to do you still want to make a lot more money uh i don't know honestly i think uh it's become more clear to me that the money is less important i mean i i think the money i don't i don't live a crazy life <laughs> it's i have uh Norm, most of my life is pretty normal. I think the, the the best thing about the money is having flexibility. And more than that is, for me at least, is it kind of gives you that kind of prestige and relevance that that I say that I, I'm looking for. Like being able to, for people, people knowing that you have that money or yeah. people knowing that you have uh had success in NFL is is good and I think that's part of the reason why I want to make more money is because I think that I don't like that people think or I assume that people make assumptions about me about what I'm able to afford or what I'm able to do is only based on me being an athlete whether it's true or or uh or false isn't important I just like I want to get to the point where uh, I feel comfortable saying that the things that uh, I've achieved financially and the things that I can afford my family is partially because of football, but even more because of what I've done afterwards. Do you enjoy watching football now? 
Nope. No? <laughs> Do you just not watch? Nah. I have a hard time watching injuries. A sport that's as dangerous as football and has the long-term repercussions that we've all kind of been reading about lately. It's difficult for me to watch guys get knocked unconscious. That was two and a half years ago. Since then, a lot has changed. Hello? Dominique? What's up, California number? You're so cool. (laughs) (laughs) Since we first talked, Dominique has finished business school at Harvard. He lives in Washington, D.C. now with his family. He and his wife had a third kid, and Dominique took a job with ESPN. When we last talked on the show, you told me you didn't watch football anymore, you didn't watch the NFL anymore. Now it's part of your job to talk about football? Yep. Yep. So I watch it now. Right after he finished his MBA, Dominique's career was headed in a different direction. He was hired as the chief operating officer for the National Basketball Association's Players Union. But he says he knew early on it wasn't a great fit. As uh, an executive, like 80% of the day is spent doing really boring kind of mundane things. And I tend to think of myself as a little bit more creative and fun and I was fortunate enough to to make enough money while playing that I had my choice and I found myself on the subway to work in New York one morning uh, with a bunch of other people who were on the subway to work and they were angry and I wasn't all that happy and I was looking around like, but I don't actually have to do this. So I kind of made the decision to to, uh, try my best to quiet those like ego uh, like the the egotistical urges in me that liked having the big title and liked having the big salary and and so I quit with no plan to do anything else he was unemployed for about two or three months but he'd started writing on the side and he realized he liked it that's how Dominique started working for ESPN He contributes on air and writes for the site The Undefeated. I kind of do air quotes whenever I say I'm a journalist because I don't want to be, like, disrespectful to, like, I don't know, like, real journalists, like Woodward and Bernstein, like, (laughs) the the, the craft of journalism, because I don't, uh, I am far from there yet. Like, has that felt, you, in your life, you have been a standout, excellent performer at that everything you've done that the public has been able to see. So, like, has it felt uncomfortable to be learning how to be a writer on the Internet, learning how to be a commentator, like, with people watching? Um, yes. And that's kind of the best part. People talk about um, how difficult it is to transition out of the NFL professional sports in general, because there is no supplement for some of the things that you will miss. There's no comparison to playing a game in front of a hundred thousand people and millions of people on TV and having your every move criticized. And I like the idea of, I've come to enjoy uh, saying things that are different and, and 
challenges people's kind of belief and then going to Twitter afterwards and hearing people tell me how smart I am or how dumb I am. Like I, I enjoy both. Are you, are you still mostly living off of your NFL money as far as how you're yeah. paying the bills? Oh yeah. I mean, that's, that's, uh, Hopefully, I, I will never have to live off of anything else. Uh, I, I, that should be fine if I don't like do something stupid or Trump doesn't tank the economy, and then I'll be good. Are you? Do you have enough money that you are living off the earnings of your wealth? Yeah, yeah. So it's nothing is going down. There's no decreasing. Nope. <sighs> that's a that's a nice situation. <laughs> it, is. <laughs> it is. I um. I. So it's. It is a tremendous situation, and I love it. And it is not without guilt. Mostly, I think just because the older I've, I've gotten, and this is probably uh, in conflict with my football mind, but the older I've gotten, the more I've realized that we have, as individuals, have less to do with um, uh, the outcomes of our lives than we want to believe, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So like in, in football, it's very, it's kind of like coaches preach and players believe, like whoever works the hardest is going to win. So like it's in your complete control. And I think that's probably something that I believed in the fact that I was successful making a lot of money. Like, of course I want to believe that the people who are successful and make a lot of money are the people who have worked the hardest because that means that I have worked the hardest. But in actuality, when I go back through like the timeline of my life, I think of all of these like random happenstance events that happen to break in my favor to lead me to the life that I have. And then like, once you get more experience in the world and you learn more about other people and other cultures and other situations, you realize that some people don't have a chance in life. And they're, no matter how smart they are, how athletic they are, how talented they are, they are in situations through no fault of their own that they don't have the resources or the opportunity to succeed. So, I mean, I'm not giving any of my money. I mean, I give money to charity, but I'm not giving it all back. Like, this is a life that I like and appreciate, but I also try to be honest with myself and think, like, to some degree, I kind of feel like I don't necessarily deserve it. What part of Washington are you living in? The white part. Fancy part. (laughs) (laughs) The white part. Well, because I was going to ask, like, is it, does it feel like when you're moving back home, but you're in a totally different financial position than when you left. Like, what's that uh, feel like? Uh, like, it never feels comfortable. So my, my wife, her whole family is, like, super successful in D.C. And she seems very comfortable in this house and, and the stores that she shops in and, and in the schools that the kids go to. And I'm not. Like I, I never have been. I always feel like when I go into the fancy stores with her, like I always feel like uh, people are looking at me funny, and I always feel like I have to buy something mm. to like prove like I can be here and I should be here. And the same thing when I go to the kids' schools, but I can't help but be like, uh, 
but I'm 31 year old black guy from Baltimore. And like all the other parents are like lawyers who are like 45 and it just feels, um, to me, it feels more like they belong than I do. Even the, the black parents who are in the schools that the kids go to, it's like, mm-hmm. uh, like my best friend from childhood, like, uh, did seven years for selling drugs. Like, and I grew up in, in, in a nice part of Baltimore County. So uh, I don't know. It just, it feels odd, but I, I have to admit that there are some benefits to, to being back here and being around family. It makes Christmas a lot more fun and uh, a lot more exhausting also, but <laughs> <laughs> it's good. How is, how is family different with three kids? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I could go with the old joke that everyone says about going from man to man to zone at this point. But to be honest, we had matchup issues before we <laughs> had before we had three. So, so um, it's it's a challenge. Uh, but I think the the best thing, just because football was such a part of my life since I was so young, I can't help but internalize some of those um, kind of cultural things. And one of them is like, everything is super important. And every time something goes wrong with one of my kids, like in my mind, it needs to be rectified immediately or else they are headed on a one-way course to prison. And I have failed as a parent. So I think kind of realizing that it's okay that things go wrong every now and then and being uh, as patient as I can. Like I, I, kids have, it's kind of a cliche, but they, they help, they've helped me probably as much or more than, no, not more. I feed them. They wouldn't even eat without me. Never mind. (laughs) (laughs) I've helped them more than they helped me. Uh, I was going down this whole beautiful Disney nonsense path when it's just BS. I feed them. They, if I, if they weren't around, I would find a way to eat. But I think just in general, it's, it's funny because uh, we kind of think of growing up as something that we all do when we're young and then we're like in our mid twenties or late twenties or something. And like, we are who we are. I don't know. That's just BS. Like I, I'm different than I was three years ago. And I, like who I am better than I've ever liked the person that I was at any point in my life. That's Dominique Foxworth. He contributes to ESPN and ESPN Radio and writes about football, race, and culture on the site The Undefeated. We've linked to a few pieces on our website at deathsexmoney.org, including his reflections after seeing the movie Concussion. We all played this game and were all subject to the potential devastating consequences, Dominique wrote. Suddenly, I was more aware that I am not separate and safe. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. I'm based at the Center for Investigative Reporting in Emeryville, California. The team includes Katie Bishop, Chester Jesus Soria, Emily Botin, and Andrew Dunn. Jim Briggs mixed the original episode with Dominique. Our intern is Adriana Rush. 
The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at DeathSexMoney. And email us anytime at DeathSexMoney at WNYC.org. Dominique may be back to watching football, but he told me he's not interested in his three-year-old son ever taking up the game. I would love for him to play sports of some kind, but the risk of doing damage to his brain doesn't seem worth it to me to take the chance because he doesn't necessarily need to pay off. Like, he he could be anything. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. WNYC.